Okay, so this is official welcome to OpenCO for the weekly huddle. I'm going to mute all of you and then we'll unmute whenever you have uh, to speak some uh, something so that we can reduce the crosstalk. My name is Anup Agrawal. Uh, all the attendees here pretty much know me. I'm hosting this session for the 21st time. Uh, and with me is my co-host, uh, Pranit. We both are cardiologists at uh, Kier Banjara. And uh, today we are going to discuss on peripartum cardiomyopathy. And for that, I have a group of experts who can tell us about how to go with this. We have a, a esteemed gynecologist. I can't, I can't pick her more. As I'm reading about her, I realize that uh, I can't just finish uh, describing her qualifications on this. Dr. Manjula Anagani is here. She's a Padam Street recipient, and she is a consultant at Medicover. We have uh, Professor P. Krishnam Raju. All of you know him. He is a very senior cardiologist uh, at Care Hospital. And then we have got Dr. Raghu. Uh, he is uh, uh, he heads the non-invasive lab at uh, Care Hospital. He's a cardiologist, uh, of course, and uh, he's a president-elect for uh, Indian Association of Echocardiography. So. As you all know, and people who are joining uh, the weekly huddle for the first time, this is a casual interaction uh, which revolves around one particular case. We take one topic, we take one case, and we discuss about it. Uh, while we are interested in uh, understanding the science and guidelines and everything, we are really focused on practice patterns. The main goal of weekly huddle is to understand what kind of decisions you are taking, why are you taking that decision, and to understand your thought process a little bit so that we can put it in our own clinical practice and share uh, thoughts. I'm going to uh, also uh, introduce a few people in the, in the group. We have Dr. Chandra Mukhi. She's also a cardiologist at CARE Hospitals. Uh, we have got a few residents from CARE. Dr. Praveen, he's an assistant professor of cardiology at Osmania General Hospital. And uh, we have got uh, Vrinda. She's an endocrinologist at, at Care Hospital. Yeah. And uh, uh, Dr. Vrinda, Vrinda is my wife, so that's conflict of interest. Uh, so typically, the way I start this session is uh, I give a clinical question to Pranit. We, uh, we get Pranit's input, and then I open the session for uh, the audience interaction. Because we have few experts here, what I will do is I will ask uh, other people to share their opinion, and then we will go to our uh, guests for tonight to see how they would do. So Pranit, here is the clinical scenario. This patient I saw a few months ago. This was pre-COVID time. And uh, yeah. please let me know if you need any more clinical information than what I'm providing. She sure. is a 29-year-old female. She does not have any known medical issue. She is postpartum day four. This was her first pregnancy, which was spontaneously conceived. And she had a normal vaginal delivery without any complications. She gave uh, birth to a baby girl. On day two postpartum at home, she started complaining of some dyspnea. No chest pain, no other symptom, just some dyspnea. She discussed with her gynecologist. Uh, on day three postpartum, uh, she underwent an echocardiogram, which showed LV dysfunction. And at that time, she was instructed to come to a cardiac center. So on day four, she was in the emergency room at Care Hospital. And I'm talking to her. Uh, this was her presenting complaint. Uh, other than dyspnea, really nothing else. When I saw her, her blood pressure was 130 over 90. Heart rate was 112. 
on exam on examination she had clear evidence of fluid overload she had elevated jvd uh, crepitations were present uh, bilaterally her, her she was a little bit desaturating 88 on room room air uh, on oxygen she was maintaining 98% uh, she was normal uh, thermic her ecg had sinus tachycardia with no ischemia otherwise echocardiogram that was done at bedside showed lv ejection fraction about 35 to 40% with global hypokinesis no real LV dilatation that I could appreciate. Very mild mitral regurgitation. Right ventricular function was okay. IVC was dilated. We got some labs later on. The pertinent labs are hemoglobin 10.5, creatinine 0.8. Electrolytes are okay. Uh, I tried to uh, probe a little bit about family history and her previous history, and really I couldn't get anything contributory. She otherwise, she has two siblings. Both of them are fine. No real family history of uh, cardiomyopathy or anything of that sort. So I'm going to obviously manage her with typical heart failure medication, namely diuretics, oxygen support, salt restriction, fluid restriction, and uh, maybe give her a little bit of nitroglycerin to get her preload down, and later on start her on a little bit of beta blocker and whatnot. The question for you, Pranit, is other than traditional heart failure medication, what else would you do? Uh, give us some input about how you would approach this, particularly emphasizing on role of bromocryptin here or role of cabergoline here, or if you would manage it slightly differently. Pranit, on to you. Yeah, no. Uh, so um, regarding this case, I don't have much to add with uh, from what you have said. So essentially, uh, my management also will be on uh, diuretics, fluid salt restriction, and all the regular heart failure, med heart failure management stuff. Regarding the usage of bromocryptin, pergolin, and other drugs, I have zero experience. I have zero knowledge on how do we do and how do we add and all those things. So I'm keen on learning. If I have to use, how do I use them? So nothing more that I can add to whatever that you are managing. So, uh... Pranit, the question, the reason why I wanted to ask this question is, and this is open for every anybody else to answer, this patient, I have an empiric diagnosis of postpartum cardiomyopathy because there is really no other reason why she would have that uh, uh, cardiac dysfunction. By the way, I also should add, her pregnancy otherwise was non-complicated in terms of that she did not have uh, eclampsia or preeclampsia or anything like that. So yeah. is there any difference in how you approach a heart failure related to postpartum cardiomyopathy versus a heart failure in a typical dilated cardiomyopathy? Do you, do you approach it any differently? Uh, no. So the acute management more or less will be the same thing. Uh, but the only uh, uh, hope or only thing that I probably would be hoping is that probably these patients may have a chance of getting better with some time versus someone who has a dilated cardiopathy. I know that it's a long journey. That is the only thing uh, that I look at these patients differently. But other than that, from the management point of view, uh, no, probably nothing more that I can add. Okay. Uh, anybody else has anything to add before we get to our guests for tonight? Any Anyone who would do things differently or has a different thought? Maybe I'll pick a couple of names. Uh, Krishan Raju, sir, I'll get to you because I think once once you share your opinion, then nobody else will share their opinion. So I'll uh, I will get to you in a second. Uh, Dr. Chandramukhi, could I have your opinion in terms of how you would manage these cases? 
I'm unmuting you. Yeah, acute heart failure, I will manage in the same way as you did. And uh, I also don't have much experience with the bromocryptin, but uh, I have listened from various people in our uh, hospital that bromocryptin is helpful in these cases of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Okay, and, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, ma'am. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. Uh, Dr. Praveen, anything else that you want to add? I'm unmuting you. Uh, sir, uh, regarding the acute failure management, uh, the same line as you have said, sir. Uh, I have zero knowledge regarding the bromocryptin usage. Krishnam uh, Raju, sir, your opinion on this? Okay. Uh, see, the uh, nomenclature itself has been somewhat debated because at a given point in time, like in your patient, we don't really know whether it is partum cardiomyopathy, peripartum cardiomyopathy, or had always been present even earlier, worsened now. So one of the suggestions by the world experts had been to rename this entity as pregnancy-associated cardiomyopathy. So, which basically means your patient may have had cardiomyopathy even earlier, it became clinical now, that is one. Two, 10% of the so-called peripartum cardiomyopathies come in the last one month of pregnancy. Third group are those who come after the delivery uh, up to anything like five months. Now, there is an interesting question here. Why five months? Why not five months or uh, six days, let us say? I will answer that a little later. And then the fourth category is those people who had peripartum cardiomyopathy in the previous pregnancies and has recurred now. Uh, another category will be peripartum cardiomyopathy now continuing as non-regressive continuing cardiomyopathy. So there are multiple subtypes. There is another way of looking at it from a different uh, European group. They said mainly there are two types of peripartum cardiomyopathies. One is inflammatory type which could be assessed by doing a myocardial biopsy and uh, some other investigations, which if there is time, I will enlarge on that. And then two, non-inflammatory peripartum cardiomyopathy. It appears that inflammatory cardiomyopathy is worse than non-inflammatory cardiomyopathy for various reasons. That is the, my first take on that. Going back to what uh, Pranit and uh, Chandramukhi as you talked about, and you also questioned specifically about bromocryptine. I had used it in some patients, but you know, off late, uh, the entity of peripartum cardiomyopathy itself is not as high as we used to see, say something like 10, 15 years back when I was working in Usmania General Hospital. There we had a lot of them. But here in a private setup, we don't see. I don't know whether it is related to economic status or a better nutritional status or better demographics 
or it has really come down, we don't really know because it varies from country to country, region to region. That maybe we'll go back to later. So as far as bromocyptin is concerned, this is because of certain genetic abnormalities in the woman. Uh, they have a deletion of what is called STAT3. Don't ask me what it is because I wouldn't be able to answer you. So this deletion of STAT3 leads to, during pregnancy, any increased release of what is called cathepsin D. Cathepsin D. Now, this cathepsin D is the real villain. This is the one which uh, cleaves the molecule of prolactin produced by the pituitary gland during the last months of pregnancy and five to six months post-delivery. So this cleaved prolactin <coughs> releases a molecule called 16 kilodalton A, 16 KD small A. This is a microRNA. This releases a microRNA, 146. This microRNA enters the myocardial cells. Then this is anti-angiogenic and it is apoptotic and inflammatory in nature, thereby killing the cardiomyocytes. And this produces exosomes. These exosomes enter the myocytes and destroy the myocytes. Now, bromocryptine is expected to block this chain of events. And it has been shown that the evolution of the peripartum cardiomyopathy is uh, very closely related to the levels and timing of release of prolactin. Last month, see, initially, there is not much of prolactin. As the pregnancy goes into last month, it increases. Then lactation. During the lactation period, prolactin is again high. That is the reason why in these patients, breastfeeding is uh, to be avoided by some advocates. So here, the bromocryptine may be able to block this cleavage of the prolactin, thereby avoiding the death of the cardiomyocytes, thereby avoiding the cardiomyopathy related to the pregnancy. Uh, the first report came from Germany on just 10 patients and 10 normals. That is the uh, comparable study. That was the very first one which came in sometime in 2010 or something like that. After that, few more studies have cropped up and few groups have found it to be very moderately useful. Few groups could not prove it. But uh, if you have exhausted your medical therapies uh, before you go on to invasive therapies and uh, like LVAD or intraortic balloon, ICD, cardiac transplant, all of them are also options in a very sick pregnant woman. So before you do that, it is worthwhile trying something like bromocryptine. It could be effective. It could also be used, as suggested by European society, the recurring pregnancy to prevent recurrence of the postpartum cardiomyopathy in the subsequent pregnancies. But we don't really know, nobody really knows how effective it is. Because not every woman will have a recurrence of postpartum cardiomyopathy. 
roughly it is about 50 to 60 percent that will come to a little later on so but it is advised as a preventive therapy in the subsequent pregnancies that is the role of bromocriptine when you use it and when i used it i used it according to european data 2.5 milligrams twice a day for six weeks uh, this basically means that uh, this is after delivery or if you have started it before delivery you continue it post delivery for a period of six to eight weeks and then uh, maybe you can uh, take it off and continue other medication that is a specific role of uh, bromocriptine people also have used uh, pentoxifilin pentoxifilin anti-inflammatory and also anticoagulant and also it opens up the microcarnary circulation of the myocardium so people have used pentoxifilin but i haven't really except in peripheral arterial disease i had not used it in this particular um, clinical setting there are some groups who have used immunoglobulins intravenous immunoglobulins but there isn't any final word said on that but probably if you use immunoglobulins in a proven inflammatory myocarditis as the cause of peripartum cardiomyopathy maybe it may have some role to play but otherwise non-inflammatory cardiomyopathy it is of uh, no real use some people have used corticosteroids as well but did not find it to be of any use i think uh, uh, i completed my answer to your question nanup yes sir thank you so much that was pretty comprehensive and i do have follow up questions but i'll come back to you uh, let me actually get dr manjula's thought here so dr manjula i have got two questions for you and then you can share your thoughts about this particular case as well number 1 is this is day 4 postpartum patient in emergency room right. i'm sure even before i get into this this patient an obstetrician has already been called in a review has already been placed and mm. you are you are there at the patient's bedside so right. what all value you can add or if you can guide us towards the treatment that is number 1 and number 2 is could you could you have done something while she was pregnant itself to predict this or can we be of any help in those kind of situations? Right. Uh, before going to this answer, I would like to give my opinion about what uh, Sir has told and everything. See, first, when we look at the cause, now it is more and more coming out that it is the vascular hormonal hypothesis which is coming out. Like Sir said, hormonal part of it, it is because of the uh, the 16K Dalton um, uh, thing which is coming out, that is the abnormal uh, prolactin. And the second thing which has been actually coming out very much, which is why people get confused between PRH and the PPCM is that it is a vascular endothelial growth factor which is actually blocked either because of soluble FMS like tyrosine kinase or something like that. So this is the reason uh, the cause being the apoptosis of the muscle fiber and the vascular endothelial function which is happening, which is causing this, bromocryptin has started in the first place. But the second reason why it has become more and more, and by obstetricians, we do use a lot of bromocryptin and cabergolin in these patients. In fact, if my patient comes to me postpartum with PPCM, I would first put cabergolin for her, is that the efficiency, the afterload, how much she can take without being dysnic and being able to feed the baby. So WHO says in the Western countries or anything where when the ejection fraction is less than 35%, the 
lactic breastfeeding should be avoided. So the drug of choice for suppression of breastfeeding would be cabergolin or bromocriptin. So with bromocriptin, sir has told you the dosage that is 2.5 milligram daily twice for six weeks. But with cabergolin, we start 0.5 milligram to start, then one daily for two days, then followed by weekly twice for three months and then weekly once by three months if it is because of this cause. And like sir said, I think we usually try to in the next pregnancy give during delivery also. Now, here what I, I wanted to add it in this particular case, on fourth day, you have seen a blood pressure of 130-90. Right? Dr. Anup? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely correct. So, 130-90 yes, within a week. See, it takes one week for the whole PIH changes in the body to come back. Sometimes postpartum hypertension also will come back to normal in six weeks. So if it's 130-90 postpartum, you should also look at coexistent PIH even if the pre-pregnancy was normal. Because we have to go by the thing of systolic more than 30 and diastolic more than 15. That itself will hold true in this case. So in a case when a person comes with um, post-delivery, pregnancy, dyspnea, we always look at pulmonary embolism and PIH in this case because 130-90. And uh, there is also... First, first in thought would always be to do a 2D eco because to rule out both the uh, pulmonary embolism part of it and the um, PPCM part of it. But saying this, um, anything which can we can we predict? No, I think this is something which we cannot predict unless she presents with some symptoms antenatally, either in the form of dyspnea. But high degree of suspicion is very much needed because the dyspnea, which is like air hunger, both are almost similar because of progesterone itself. So unless we suspect there is a PIH associated, since both the uh, the pathogenesis of the, apart from the prolactin, the vascular endothelial factor part of it is same when it comes to PIH and PPCM, we should think in high degree of suspicion. That is first thing. Uh, but sir, absolutely told correctly that in the recent times, we have seen less and less of EPCM because the nutritional factor has come down uh, drastically in the sense that selenium deficiency has been associated with the uh, PPCM uh, and even um, abortions. So the supplements of selenium, which we start giving A to Z or even micronutrients have decreased the incidence and the second thing which has helped is in the recent times with the more and more knowledge about PIH that is pregnancy induced hypertension we started adding L-arginine or anything which can increase the endothelial nitric oxide so vascular dilatation basically the placental blood and the lower uh, resistance placental circulation is something which we are encouraging so with that the VEGF is actually getting um, better and the outcomes both in the PIH and the PPCMs have come down. So these are the two reasons why we are seeing lesser and lesser uh, peripartum cardiopyopathy. So I think either the PIH, if it has come postnatally in this particular lady, or whenever any lady with PIH comes along with the antihypertensives, today's time, most of us have started L-arginine so that we can have an endothelial nitric oxide release and the placental circulation to be improved and the vascular endothelial growth factors to be functioning normally. So if this can be added, I think the incidence can come down. And in and I think that differential diagnosis, like everybody knows, when she comes to us in the ER, first thing we are worried about is, did we miss something which during antenatal periods or during delivery 
or pulmonary embolism is always first first on the highest uh, list but hemoglobin being 10.5 anemia is ruled out and the third space um, uh, enclosure when you said pulmonary edema is there it is the lvf which always comes in the first thing so 2d eco is the way we, i would definitely go forward ma'am before i would let you go just one more thing uh, you told about arginine i don't think we have ever used arginine could you give us some idea how do you start it? yeah Elagenin sachets are available. Capsules are available in antenatal period. We start off right from whenever there is a higher risk. Like previously, we used to start low molecular weight uh, heparin or ASA before. Now it is lesser and lesser ASAs. We are started using loprins, and we started increasingly using elagenin because the knowledge have increased in showing us that elagenin, when it acts at the level of endothelial um, endothelium, it releases the enos endothelial nitric oxide so because of that there is a vasodilatory effect in the uh, placental bed so if the igr is decreased liquor has increased the pih the effects of pih is decreased it per se does not uh, decrease the incidence of pih but it pushes the pih so that microvascular pathy which we see in the placenta is decreased so we start using it right from at 13 weeks when we see the dopplers nowadays we do a pentamarker at 12 to 13 weeks dr anup where we pick up plgf that is placental growth factor if which is uh, which will predict us the incidence of the pih later in the pregnancy and the vascular resistance in the dopplers so these two put together will give us the risk of the pih later early onset and late onset also so once we see that we start elagenin or embryo safe or whatever we want to label whichever thing along with think right from 13 weeks or when we start seeing the prh after 28 weeks or anything along with the lebetlol or whatever we are starting our alpha dopa or nicardia we also add elagenin because we need the circulation uh, to be increased because we know it is the microvascular pathy and the vascular resistance which is the cause in prh so we start off with two sachets per day till the delivery and after that depending on what we see and the selenium deficiency ma'am that you yes. that brought up are these tablets a to z and what not are they sufficient to, they to do that No, there is a tablet capsule called Celes Four for all the prenatal. In my practice, I really don't know how many are using it, but every woman coming to me for a prenatal advice, not prenatal, this thing would receive one folic acid definitely with the B6 and B12 combination that is Folsafel or Folsiorel or anything like that. Then the second medicine I always add is Celes Four, which is having all antioxidants with selenium. Because this started off with when I started practicing in care hospital itself, when I used to see recurrent pregnancy. the last woman coming to us and then everything would be normal how many hour tests we do it would be normal except that antithyroid antibodies will be positive and the thyroid is also borderline then when i started researching more and more then i came to know that selenium deficiency is more prominent in this hypothyroid people where antibodies are more whichever is whenever this is immunological immunological theory comes up selenium is the one thing which is deficiently deficient and that is the reason for recurrent pregnancy loss in this women so when it which started with my insight into the recurrent pregnancy loss because of hypothyroidism helped me a lot in understanding the importance of selenium so i give the patient celes fort every day once Three months prior, when they come to us, and we continue for first three months of pregnancy. So in our practice till now, luckily we did not see PPCM in patients, but other patients who do come, the incidence has definitely come down. Thank you so much, ma'am. So let me get to Dr. Raghu. Uh, 
Sir, you heard all the stories. Uh, how would you approach these patients? And since Dr. Krishnam Raju brought up the inflammatory versus non-inflammatory uh, PPCM, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you see any role of doing endomyocardial biopsy in patients who present like the one that I told you? And also your approach towards this patient. Dr. Raghu. Yeah, uh, I heard everything. I think the whole gamut of uh, this very rare uh, cardiomyopathy has been considered. The only thing that uh, uh, I would uh, think about when patient presents like, like that is after the initial management of heart failure, uh, generally they respond to all the medications that you and Praneet uh, have stated. And once the heart failure is under control, uh, you start dissecting out whether this is, can really be kept as a diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. So you you try to uh, exclude the various other causes uh, uh, like uh, severe anemia. Uh, patient probably had an undiagnosed preeclampsia with severe hypertension leading to her LV dysfunction, which subsequent to the pregnancy uh, manifests uh, with a decrease in the uh, LV ejection fraction, which is diagnosed subsequent to pregnancy delivery. And of course, uh, rule out uh, uh, thiamine deficiencies uh, in these patients. I possibly, uh, as a rule, give thiamine to all these patients. Uh, so those who are because of thiamine deficiency, uh, uh, very, very like cardiomyopathy would have a reversal of the cardiomyopathy. Having done all that, I start worrying about what to address uh, for the future. So this is where the importance of an inflammatory cardiomyopathy versus a genetic peripartum cardiomyopathy would possibly come in. Uh, the, a person with a myocarditis, if the, the prognosis would be worse, and uh, if the patient really has a very severe LV ejection fraction, you start uh, worrying about the need to sustain her, use LVAD, use ECMO, bring her out of the congestive heart failure till the myocarditis resolves. If you uh, do not have any pointers to suggest that, and the patient is making a steady recovery, then you start worrying about what their future is going to be. So that can be addressed only during follow-up. If the LV function improves uh, considerably, then it becomes much easier to manage. You would need to possibly keep them on the uh, ACE inhibitors and uh, beta blockers, at least for a period of one to two years. That is what is recommended in the guidelines. But the other important question that is often asked by my patients, I've, uh, I can say that I have seen about uh, 10 to 15 uh, patients in the last uh, 10, 12 years. There has been a steady decrease in the number of cases, as Dr. Krishnamraju mentioned. Uh, incidentally, I'd like to point out here that whereas the literature mentions that there is a high, a higher incidence in the African countries, there the incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy is more in multiparous uh, women rather than in primary or uh, the second pregnancy. I have, for all the patients I have seen, uh, have been primary or the, after uh, during the second pregnancy. I have not really seen uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy in my, uh, multiparous, so possibly also because I rarely ever see uh, multiparous women in our country as uh, not as commonly as we do in the other countries so uh, having settled uh, this the next question that is to be addressed which has not been talked about is the recurrence normally there is a, supposed to be a recurrence of over 20 percent so the patient inevitably asks you the question how do i uh, do i go in for another successful pregnancy and the problem comes in when the patient is very keen to have another pregnancy, or if unfortunately the first pregnancy has resulted in a, uh, uh, the death of the uh, 
child after birth and what do you uh, tell the patient after of course if the patient's ejection fraction remains uh, uh, bad you categorically state that they cannot have a second pregnancy because the maternal mortality is very very high in fact the maternal mortality in this condition is uh, over a five year period is more than 50% which is uh, a uh, little more than even the ordinary cardiomyopathies that we normally uh, come across so yeah, you certainly uh, categorically state that you cannot have a second pregnancy if the ejection fraction is not improved but if the ejection fraction is improved then comes the problem as to whether to uh, advise a second pregnancy i in, usually i tell my patients that they should not uh, if they can help it have a second pregnancy but if something uh, if they insist on or they accidentally have it i tell them that they need to be very closely monitored and that the recurrence rate is very very high and uh, i would even go to the extent of suggesting uh, an mtp if uh, the there's been an accidental pregnancy uh, this is where possibly genetic testing might help so if, if uh, those patients where you have excluded myocarditis and uh, you do a genetic testing and if the genetic testing does not keep the patient in a, a few of the uh, genetically known brackets then possibly the chances of recurrence may be a little lower but that is something uh, which is very foggy at the moment very difficult to answer the question uh, dr manjula uh, made an uh, uh, mention of lrgnet i have been using uh, for quite some time uh, carnitol which is nsl carnitine and uh, what, uh, you might ask what is the basis for this this is supposed to uh, help in many of the uh, myocarditis patients there were in fact a series of article in the mid and uh, early 90s which subsequently has been given up but somehow i empirically use it uh, it's a drug that doesn't uh, produce much harm whenever i uh, think that there is a patient of uh, possible myocarditis or a possible peripartum cardiomyopathy tend to use it for 6 months and in a few patients there was some resolution but as you know it's very difficult to attribute this to the drug you know very well that patients with uh, this kind of uh, presentation quite often improve on their own they resolve spontaneously so it's very difficult to just give me gives me some uh, sense of comfort to give the uh, medication and i really don't know there are not uh, enough data scientific data to say that this is uh, definitely evidence based practice i suppose i think i have covered whatever i needed to uh, mention uh, dr anup if uh, you have any questions on what i have addressed i am willing to answer them sure sir we'll get you back um, dr radha if i can just get your opinion about this nutritional deficiency business that we have for peripartum cardiomyopathy there is a lot of thought process about uh, zinc and selenium deficiency it has been studied in various studies sure india does india does not have the data but uh, do you have any insight on nutrition deficiency and cardiomyopathy peripartum and how we can help dr radha yeah yeah just a minute yes ma'am uh, it's a general thing that uh, nutritional status is connected to Uh, the occurrence of uh, cardiomyopathy but as uh, manjula madam said uh, good evening madam uh, i am uh, radha i hope you remember that i am from sunshine hospital hey okay 
ജനറലിസ്റ്റ്രീഷൻ then i i prefer for to give an advice for iv i don't know madam has to given a input where uh, something like salicyl which is a combination of zinc and selenium a higher dose and the absorption would be way too better than when you give it as a tablet because there are so many inherent factors which inhibit the complete absorption or utilization of uh, the tablet so an iv will be better but there's always been connection that malnutrition does have a role to play in the occurrence of uh, cardiomyopathy yes radha but once we know that there is deficiency so here to prevent uh, dr anup we start like i said we start 3 months prior only uh, when dr raghu said about thiamine also nowadays we get this folic acid thiamine b1 b6 b12 all combination uh, capsule now yes. india is as for that so we yes. start one one tablet right before even it got pregnancy and then continue into the um, selenium and uh, zinc that thing so i think that is the one way yes, to go in forward. in such cases madam i i still have this doubt when you know that their general intake of food is bad or their general nutritional status is poor hmm. do you think iv will be better than giving a tablet they are having hyper msis or anything like that when we see lot of ketones and all then only we go for ib otherwise <coughs> okay. generally unless there is a clear cut deficiency noted here we are giving empiric treat as a preventive thing from prior so it is a oral medication which we start 3 months even before uh, they go into pregnancy okay. so but deficiency is definitely noted because of if they have any like you know kernix is there and then we evaluate and then see there is this deficiency then start treatment like that so otherwise then it will be iv but otherwise it's mostly oral only and the patient compliance also would be good when we started from 3 months before okay perfect thank you so much uh, dr krishnan raju your hand is up i think you have something to add and i would also invite you to uh, shed some light on uh, what kind of genetic testing we can do in these patients let's say this 29 year old she because not just let's say i will tell you the clinical story so i did not start her on bromocriptin i gave her just the routine heart failure medication she was discharged after 3 days staying in the hospital uh, lv function is still about 40% but uh, clinically much better so as i am discharging her is there something i can do i can order some genetic test is something that is done in hyderabad could you just help us and also share your uh, input otherwise sir uh, i have uh, i think uh, too much to talk about the uh, your questions i don't know whether you would have that much of time but let me just quickly go through sure sure sir one mode of treatment which has been omitted from discussion has been anticoagulant like low molecular weight heparin uh first let me give my comments on other co- colleagues uh discussions now low molecular weight heparin is definitely indicated 
in these patients, if they have echocardiographic, LV thrombus or any intracardiac thrombus, or if they have already embolized, or if the ejection fraction is left less than 30%. So these are the patients where it is strongly recommended to be given a low molecular weight heparin. That is one clarification which I wanted to add regarding treatment. Then I think Dr. Raghu was mentioning about African countries. The worst incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy has been registered in Nigeria. Nigeria has 1% of their uh, births with pregnancies with peripartum cardiomyopathy. And the research and found uh, very interesting things. So in Nigeria, it is the usual practice, uh, like some other African countries, to feed the postpartum woman with solid uh, lake salt, lake salt. And then for two months after delivery, they are made to lie down, not on a cotton bed, but on the bed of a mud. Mud, mud contains a lot of sodium as well. So these are the two reasons in addition to other nutritional factors which have been said to uh, lead to a very high incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy, Africa in general, Nigeria in particular. So these are the two comments on that. Well, there are other questions, uh, whether we can, see one of the most difficult tasks is to suspect peripartum cardiomyopathy, the reason being all the symptoms of cardiomyopathy are all the same as the symptoms which are normally experienced by the pregnant woman. Make it just pain, shortness of breath, palpitation, edema, jugular distension, third heart sound, fourth heart sound, murmurs, right? Some ECG changes. All of them are common to normal pregnancy and also cardiomyopathy. So uh, it is indeed, it is not all that easy to make a diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy based only on symptoms. It is near impossible. But there are certain things which can help us to differentiate them apart from echocardiography. Echocardiography is the heart of diagnosis in these matters. So keeping that aside, there are other things which we can do, like for example, you can, suppose if an ECG shows a left bundle branch block, even without symptoms, these are the patients who are very, very uh, likely to go into cardiomyopathy. Asymptomatic left bundle branch block during pregnancy. Then two, if you take a blood sample and then assess the microRNAs, the number 146, 146 microRNA measurable in the circulatory system is very, very highly suggestive of a cleaved prolactin, thereby indicating a possible uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Then you also have certain new studies where they have shown that inflammatory markers, like for example, tro troponin, 
anti-proBNP, and then um, uh, tumor necrosis factor, etc., etc. So these also help us to strongly suspect a possible cardiomyopathy, and they also give a prognostic value. They also will tell us whether there is a possibility of a recurrence in the next uh, subsequent pregnancies if they do occur. Then uh, talking about the etiology, a lot of things have been said by Dr. Manzula uh, and uh, Raghu. One thing I can add, this was a very uh, favorite hypothesis until uh, many, uh, say something like 2010-2015. This was called as fetal chimerism. Fetal cells travel across the placenta barrier into the mother, they circulate, then they settle down in various tissues of the mother, including the cardiomyocytes. And when they settle down there, they produce an immunological response and destroy the cardiomyocytes and produce uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy. And interestingly, those who have these fetal cells in the maternal tissues <clears throat> are also prone to uh, subsequent pregnancy cardiomyopathies because these fetal cells continue to be present during the challenge of the next pregnancy they become active again and then damage the maternal cardiomyocytes so this was what was called as the fetal chimerism this is not too much talked about in recent years but this was a favorite hypothesis which a lot of people have written and talked about in 2010 to 2018 or so. Now, the genetic testing, as I initially mentioned, if you can uh, look for the deletion of STAT3 in the chromosome, this will give you an idea that this lady is going to have a high cathepsin D, which means that she is going to release this uh, cardiotoxic 16 kilodalton A uh, and produce an exosome which will get into the myocytes. So uh, that is one test that can be done. But apart from that, there is nothing else. Uh, there was another question which uh, cropped up during Raghu's discussion, whether we can predict future pregnancy, uh, subsequent pregnancy, cardiomyopathy again. Now it is like this. At the end of, uh, normally most of them recover by see, 10, uh, the roughly 75% of postpartum cardiomyopathies recover reasonably well or completely in the first one month. And then it continues to improve up to five months. The original definition of peripartum cardiomyopathy came in 1971 by a doctor was that Damakis? I think it is a German name, Damakis. So when he defined peripartum cardiomyopathy, he used that uh, one month before a delivery and five months after delivery as the a time band. So that continued to stick to our uh, usage of the definition even now. But that is not entirely right because a small number of patients do improve even in the sixth month. Even smaller number have a potential to improve 
partially or completely in 48 months. 48 months. But that is a small number. Now, how do you detect whether a particular lady is going to have a problem in the next pregnancy? One indicator is the ejection fraction. If the ejection fraction is less than 35%, two-thirds of them are likely to develop the recurrent uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. If the ejection fraction is something like 35 to uh, say 45 or 40, the chances drop down to 30% plus minus. If the ejection fraction has improved to more than 55% after uh, delivery, then at the end of three months, then the chances of recurrence are less than 20%, approximately around 18%. Uh, you give or take 2 to 3%. And second way you can detect is doing an MRI, cardiac MRI. If you do a cardiac contrast MRI, if you detect a gadolinium uptake in the myocardium, meaning thereby that there is myocardial scarring, so this is near certain that this lady is going to develop a recurrent postpartum cardiomyopathy. Now that MRIs are available everywhere, but the expertise in reading these cardiac MRIs is required. So that is the second indicator. Third indicator is the dobutamine echo or exercise echocardiography. So if you do a dobutamine echocardiography or exercise echocardiography and then test the myocardial reserve capacity, myocardial contractile reserve capacity, which basically means uh, rest ejection fraction and then peak exercise ejection fraction. If it is more than 5% from rest to peak exercise, the contractile reserve is reasonably good. So if the contractile reserve is reasonably good, the subsequent pregnancy cardiomyopathy, the chances are significantly less. Even if it occurs, it will be a low-risk peripartum cardiomyopathy. So the exercise echocardiography, either pharmacological or physical exercise, can give us some insight. Not that it is 100% reliable, but it is reasonably useful. The other thing that has been talked about is inflammatory markers. At the end of three months, if your anti-proBNP is very high, if your troponin is significantly high, these are the people who are again liable to get into recurrent peripartum cardiomyopathy. I think these are the few comments which I would like to make in relation to the previous uh, consultants who have been discussing this. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, Manjula, madam, I have two questions for you. Um, breastfeeding in the index case and what is your take on repeat pregnancy? See, first breastfeeding, yes, I would not encourage them to give breastfeeding, saying that even though we are in the developing countries where WHO gives an exception, saying that we can still feed because the advantages of uh, the milk from the mother is absolutely good. But saying that again, if there is a support system, they just help the baby coming there and feeding and then taking the baby back and without the load of the stress and the feeding to happen to the mother, then I think we can encourage. But again, 
talking about the etopathogenesis and the advantage of bromocriptin and cabergoline in the returning of the uh, LV dysfunction back to normal in all percent of the cases who have been on bromocriptin. I think that makes more sense seeing that her, her being the priority. So her stress, her uh, uh, health of not just the uh, heart, but it is the her efficiency to be able to feed the baby. Most of the time I have seen these women are so in a sense negative frame of mind. They don't want to even see the baby. They don't want to feed the baby. This is something which we see in the maybe the ICU psychosis or whatever happens to them. So I would definitely personally in the few patients which we have seen, we had given the uh, bromocriptin and the abergoline and we had given the top of uh, feeds which we are which are available right now. And the second part of it, like uh, Krishna Raju said, Raju sir said, um, recurrence rates are very high, but it is directly proportionate to that of the ejection fraction which will be there after the total treatment is done, maybe after six months. At the end of the six months, if the ejection fraction is more than 50-55%, and if she becomes pregnant or she wants to become pregnant because of whatever unheard uh, things happening to the first child or something, yes, under, uh, like Dr. Raghu said, under close supervision, she can go in for pregnancy, but we have to see that there are no nutritional deficiencies whether or no, and uh, salt restriction and the fluid uh, restriction, and be under the supervision of both the cardiologist and the gynecologist. Any degree of any symptom which she complains should be taken with a uh, extra precaution and test her accordingly. And if necessary, iatrogenic preterm delivery or even termination if necessary. But saying that if the ejection fraction is than 35, then definitely a big no-no. It is as a high-risk class 4 contraindication for pregnancy. So we would first always tell them why do you want to go for pregnancy? But if she says that she wants to go, then we have to evaluate all this and then go in for next pregnancy. And there is this one question by Dr. Praveen, which I thought I will answer, is uh, how to differentiate between the stress uh, cardiomyopathy and the PPCM. So one thing is if it is because of PIH or any stress, if we are thinking of DD of PIH, always proteinuria is the underlining thing which differentiates. If there is an associated proteinuria, definitely automatically we put it as overload, afterload because of the PIH. And if there is not there, then like Sir Rajasar said or Dr. Raghu said, it is the exclusion which puts us into the PPCM category. Or if there is an HELP syndrome or if the creatinine is high, automatically the treatment goes in favor of PIH and getting her out of the afterload sequencing. So this is the way I would be looking at, Dr. Anu. Ma'am, during the pregnancy, like let's say if this lady goes for second pregnancy, her LV recovered. By the way, her LV did recover. It's right. been about a, about a year now. Right. Uh, we haven't discussed of repeat pregnancy. My first uh, decision to her was to not plan for. But let's say if she does become pregnant, during the pregnancy, are there any Doppler markers early on that you can tell us that this patient should go for MTP because very high chance of recurrence? See, the Doppler will not tell us high chance of recurrence. Definitely, it will tell us if there is going to be a placenta insufficiency. If there's insufficiency, these are the patients who are supposed to be having an abnormal vascular. That's what I said. The whole hypothesis now is going more and more towards the vascular um, hormonal uh, hypothesis. So they have seen that it is definitely an abnormal at the level of the vascular level, which is causing this. So if the PLGF is high at 11 to 13 weeks time when we are doing this, 
and if the doppler says there is a higher risk i think she will be going in for uh, termination saying that we do have in fact in my practice dr raghu said 10 patients maybe i have also have seen around 10 to 12 patients second pregnancies also not just ppcm so in the last 3 years i have delivered two patients which are recurrent second pregnancies after the ppcm and they did not have any problem during pregnancy or the next pregnancy so i think maybe it's a high degree of suspicion uh, suspicion and then we are looking at her very closely and doing the tests and the everything made a difference like i said nutritional supplements before they go for pregnancy and even when they come in for pregnancy seeing we take this uh allergenin is nothing but again nutritional supplement it is an you know it is essential amino acid only thing is it acts at a different level by causing the placental hypoxia to be decreased and most of the problems are because of the hypoxia because of the vascular uh, element plus hypoxia of the maternal hypoxia leading to fetal hypoxia and the fetal outcomes are also bad because of the hypoxia which goes with it so i definitely look at doppler which will help me in termination of pregnancy or delivering a preterm delivery or if there is a patient going uneventfully i would do a vaginal delivery with painless labor and we would also look at see because we have to think of delivery pains itself causing more of overload and more of uh, the blood uh, output which comes after delivery about 500 ml coming back into the circulation so we have to look at everything so it has to be a total multidisciplinary approach of an anesthesiologist looking at the painless labor and the cutting short of second life of la- uh, stage of labor using vacuum or even forceps or cesarean if the patient is really bad but otherwise be a vaginal delivery thank you ma'am i will ask uh, one last question to dr vinda and then we'll take any other comments you have so uh, vinda we have some favorites for bromocriptine cabergolin some not favorites of bromocriptine cabergolin for the audience i will tell you there is some data uh there is some bad data about using these drugs in the cardiovascular space dr vinda what is your take because i'm sure you are using these drugs in hyperprolactinemia uh what is your take on these drugs in terms of cardiovascular safety i am unmuting you dr vinda um hi everyone um very informative talk uh, so as dr anup mentioned uh, you know the, we use uh, cabergolin very routinely for treating our patients with uh, hyperprolactinemia um i think um, between the two two drugs like from an endocrinologist perspective and you know keeping in mind that we treat um, hyperprolactinemia with these drugs um you know um, we prefer cabergolin in fact i think uh, uh, the use of bromocriptine has been virtually like not seen recently uh, except if there is intolerance to cabergolin for some reason but uh, uh, we prefer cabergolin because of you know a better efficacy profile better sa- safety tolerability profile but um, um, uh, essentially i think the doses like you know there's been some concern about the use of uh, dopamine agonist and the related valvular heart disease but uh, uh, from uh, you know from what um, i have used uh, for these many years and from the what the uh, data supports um, i think uh, the the risk of developing valvular heart disease um, occurs in a more cumulative dose dependent manner so uh, the doses that we use for um, uh, treating uh, prolactinoma or hyperprolactinemia patients usually like um, the the max doses that we go up to is 2 uh, mg uh, per week and uh, usually the risk of uh, associated valvular heart disease is pretty low 
uh, with those doses being used. Uh, I think we see it more often with uh, doses uh, that are used uh, for Parkinson's uh, treatment. Similarly, for bromocryptine, I think, um, you know, when you compare the data between um, the two drugs, um, the risk of uh, valvular heart disease is more so with uh, kebergoline compared to bromocryptine. I think we have very uh, few reports, uh, um, uh, short studies, a uh, small number of patient uh, studies with bromocryptine. And I think, again, uh, the data stresses on the fact that higher doses may be associated with valvular heart disease. Um, but for the doses that we use in uh, um, you know, treating our patients, I think the risk is very less. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Krishnam Raju, very quickly, I just have one direct question to you. Is there, is there a genetic lab in Hyderabad where I can just order a STAT3 mutation for a patient? Do you know? Uh, there are at least uh, three or four genetic labs, though I don't, they do a lot of uh, chromosomal studies, but I am not uh, really, I can't answer that question whether they will do this or not. Will I can check on that. One is uh, CCMB, Center for Cellular and Molecular Biology in Upal area. They do extend this, one of the national institutes under government of India. And the second is Institute of Genetics, but they are not that well uh, equipped, so I don't really know. But third one is there is a private lab called mapmygenome.com. It's called mapmygenome. Their website is .com. So they do extensive uh, genomic studies. Uh, they are very expensive, somewhere in the range of twenty-five to 30,000. They do genetic panels for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pulmonary arterial hypertension, coronary artery disease, sudden cardiac death, general panel, metabolic disorders. All these they do. But specifically for statry, I can find out because the managing director of that company uh, is a daughter-in-law of my close friend and a classmate of mine. So I can check with her. Her name is Anuradha Acharya. I can check with her. The fourth one is fingerprinting DNA center is there, again, of the government of India, but that is a forensic lab. So I'm not sure whether they do these particular studies, but I can check. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Um, one question that came up is, uh, how long to continue the cardiac remodeling drugs after the recovery of LV dysfunction? And Dr. Prithvi, truly speaking, I'll just answer this question for the sake of time, because uh, we really don't have good data about how long to continue. And this whole concept of uh, heart failure with recovered ejection fraction, particularly in the postpartum uh, uh, setting, uh, that science is, is all out. I typically continue for a minimum of six months, and then I check their BNP levels. If they are elevated, I continue. I continue till BNP is elevated. And if they are planning for uh, a repeat um, pregnancy, then the medicine does not stop. That's what I do. Uh, there is no science uh, science behind it. There is no guideline behind it. Uh, we are five minutes out. Uh, I would invite anybody else, if they have any other comments, questions, or thoughts, anything, maybe for the next two, three minutes, we can continue our discussion. If you have any other questions, otherwise we'll uh, uh, call it a day. Anyone else has any other thoughts? Um, you can unmute yourself and share your thoughts.
Okay, if not, then uh, let us try and close this because I think this is a topic where we can just continue on and on. So if nobody has any precise question or comments, maybe we'll start closing this. I would, like to, uh, yes, Anup, I would like to just give one sentence comment. Sir, please. So when we are in a tight situation where there is a really very critically ill pregnant woman, uh, then we have other options available now, unlike say 10 years back. Like for example, you may have a intravertic balloon, you may have an LVAD, LV assist device, or there are centers where they have even done a cardiac transplant. Now you know that uh, uh, Sir Magdi Yakub from England. Sir Magdi Yakub is an Egyptian surgeon, but works in England. He has, I was listening to his lecture in ACC few years back. He showed a, a excellent uh, demonstration of explantation of implanted LVAD in cardiomyopathy, not postpartum, but cardiomyopathy, dilated cardiomyopathy. So he had shown normalization of the cardiomyocytes and complete normalcy of the myocardium after explantation. So he then brought out a hypothesis that there is a group of patients in dilated cardiomyopathy, probably also postpartum cardiomyopathy, that is my addition, that if you can bring them out of the pregnancy and deliver them safely and have an LVAD, there may be complete recovery of the myocardium. As you are aware, LVAD is an invasive surgical procedure, but now there is hope. There are trials that are going on in the laboratory on the bench. There is a percutaneous LVAD. So when the percutaneous LVAD comes, it may be possible that we might uh, think of using it in this woman with peripartum cardiomyopathy and take it off uh, later on once myocardium becomes normal. That is another comment which I wanted to make. Thank you. Perfect, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, I again invite if anybody has any other questions or comments. Uh, Dr. Manjula, we had you on this uh, uh, session, which we thought would be good for us for the first time. Could you share your comments about the session, not the topic, but the session as a general, how we can make it better? It actually has made me so nostalgic about my early morning sessions, which we used to have in care, eight o'clock sharp. We used to have all these academics going on, which I really, truly miss. And this has actually given me an uh, opportunity to join the, all these uh, all this, all my sirs and everybody, and I would like to be involved regularly in these sessions. I thank Dr. Anup and Praveen for involving me. Thank you so much, ma'am. Uh, Praneet, your closing comments for the session? Yeah, uh, so thank you all. Uh, thank you, our guests today for sharing their uh, uh, knowledge and uh, educating us. So I think uh, it still uh, is a, a lot of gray area in management of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Uh, again, I, at the end of the talk, I still don't know when to give and what to give. Only thing probably uh, which I uh, have known is some prevention in the aspect of giving uh, arginine, selenium, etc. I am glad to know these things. But uh, when Nana. it comes as a peripartum cardiomyopathy, probably probably only heart failure management and nothing more than that and probably some expert uh, 
uh, advice when needed this is what i could uh, uh, take from this session today uh thank you pranit thanks a lot uh i thank all the participants i think that their key the key ideas that we got uh, from the session uh first is of course related to heart failure therapy uh, the medication choices that we have there certainly is some difference in practice patterns in terms of bromocriptine and cabergolin probably some of us have low threshold to start it some of us have high threshold to start it and the so is uh, in relation to breastfeeding i'll share uh, the experience for this particular patient uh, where i wrote for the patient that it is okay to breastfeed uh, the our gynecologist for the session appropriately as what dr manjula said they wrote against breastfeeding and not for the obstetrics reason but pr primarily for the cardiomyopathy reason so i think that the some of the difference in opinion or difference in patterns comes because the science is not clear yet uh as dr manjula pointed out that even the pathophysiologic understanding is uh, shifting from micro rna based to more of a double hit theory where some person who is already at risk with some sort of cardiomyopathic risk factor and now pregnancy becomes their second hit just like for lot of other cardiomyopathy viral infection or what not becomes their second hit so it's an evolving field certainly we will know uh, much more genetics is a important determinant on this patient counseling is very important and uh, anticoagulation which uh, i wanted to put up a specific topic of anticoagulation but i think uh, for the sake of time uh, we'll keep it at this so i thank all of you for joining and if you have any input for the session in terms of how we can make it better or any topics that we should involve please let me know we are very receptive for this Uh, this is the sixth month that we are doing it, and we are hoping that we are going to continue doing this. It's one hour a week; doesn't take much of our time. Uh, and being an audio, we are really not committed to anything. So we hope to see you again, and uh, we hope to hear feedback from you. Uh, good night, guys, and thank you again for joining.